Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, yesterday, I read you an email that came from someone who didn't want to be identified by name. But uh, she identified herself as a cousin of um, one of our fellow Canadians who was murdered. I wish I could start with something a little more gentle or amusing or different, but I can't because this is the news story and this is the one that matters to people. Robert Hall and John Ridsdale, two Canadians who were kidnapped and murdered and beheaded by an Islamist organization called Abu Sayyaf that is associated with ISIS. Well, Mr. Trudeau was fully aware of what was going on and there was opportunity for the Canadian government to uh, allow intervention, but the word is that um, Mr. Trudeau said no. Now, the government says that never happened, but we've uh, talked to a number of people on the air who've said yes, the Philippine uh, government was ready to go with their military. We've also heard that uh, JTF-2, Joint Task Force 2, was in the area and ready to intercede, as were the Americans. Now, this email from... Um, from this, I mean, I have, I've, I have so much difficulty reading what happened because we're talking about Canadians, we're talking about a Canadian government, we're talking about a prime minister who had opportunities and chose not to exercise them. Um, she wrote in part, my heart broke last June when at four in the morning his brother broke his forced silence and we knew Bobby, Bobby's head had been found in a bag. We received no help from our government, none. Sadly, if a Canadian now is in danger in another country, they are on their own. Their families are on their own. Not a cent spent to help them. We did not expect a ransom that would have put every traveling Canadian in danger from these barbarians, but we had no help. No effort was made to rescue them, even though we knew the Philippine government was ready to help us rescue them. I've talked to other families who've come out of the woodwork to share with us. They've been treated the same way. We had no counselor support from our Foreign Service Department. We were on our own. We dealt with this and have continued on thinking this is the way it is in Canada now for our ordinary, everyday citizens. I'm Canadian. I love my country. My heart is so sad today that this is uh, given to Omar Khadr. Good Canadians are tossed to the wolves. Opens those wounds again. I was in the car going shopping, listening to your show, and I had to turn around and go home and cry because I'm so sad. And the way it began was last spring, my cousin Bobby was beheaded by Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. He and John Ridsdale, Tess, Bobby's fiance, and the owner of the marina were kidnapped. After nine months of torture and deprivation, Bobby Robert Hall was beheaded by the laughing, joking terrorists that held him captive. John was beheaded also in April before Bobby. Tess was freed two weeks after they made her watch Bobby being beheaded. And the marina owner was freed several weeks after that. For nine months, we were not allowed to say anything to anyone, not even our eight children, because we were told if anything got onto social media, it would be dangerous for Bobby. So we silently prayed and did all we could for him quietly. Gord Bibby is um, a cousin of Robert Hall, and Bernice Thomas is Robert Hall's sister. I've talked to them before, and they joined me again on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Bernice, 
I, 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 you know, I'm sorry that you constantly have to confront. Seems that you constantly have to confront what, uh, what, 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 what's going on. And in this case, it's Cotter, and uh, and and like other family members who've who've suffered loss in this country, you step forward because you want to help other people, and that's why you had the petition. And I, I wish we had better circumstances under which to speak, but I'm 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 glad to talk to you again. It's nice to talk with you again, Roy, and I. I just have to say I'm so appreciative that, that you're allowing us to keep this injustice towards my brother and John Ridsdale in the forefront of Canadians' minds and, and keep the pressure on the government about what happened and why they didn't attempt to rescue. We all need to do this. We all have to remember because the next Canadian family could be anybody. Indeed. Indeed. Hi, Gord. Hi, Roy. Nice, nice to hear you on the West Coast. Sure. Well, it's good to be back on CKNW in Vancouver, and we started uh, back yesterday, and uh, yeah, I'm gone for a few years, but certainly looking forward to hearing from our Vancouver and Lower Mainland listeners, and the email is Roy at Roy Green Show and at the Roy Green Show on Twitter. Gord, uh, a quick word, a quick thought from you on Carter receiving $10.5 million from a prime minister, and you just heard the, the, the voice track of the, the clip of the prime minister saying, everybody, every Canadian's protected by the charter. Well, of course they're not. In the case of uh, my cousin Bob and uh, and John, uh, I, I, I'm outraged. That's that's the only uh, word that comes to mind. Uh, Cotter is being portrayed as uh, as a victim, and of course it's uh, it's typical that they would deflect, uh, the, you know, the, his uh, his activities over uh, during the war, uh, and and saying it's a it's a matter of human rights, uh, you know. Bob and John's rights were were never uh, never defended while they were being held prisoner, and uh, and and Cotter. I mean, there's there's uh, it's documented that he was making IEDs designed to kill soldiers, and some of those could have been Canadian soldiers. And it really doesn't matter if you're killed by a nine-year-old or a 29-year-old. You're you're still dead, and I'm sure the the families of of those victims, uh, their grief was not diminished by the fact that. Uh, the perpetrator was was a child, uh, so uh, I really have to agree with Angela's email that you read earlier. I think uh, Mr. Trudeau seems to pick and choose uh, his uh, his as as. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. This is not about the details or merits of the Cotter case. When the government violates any Canadian's charter rights. We all end up paying for it. I, I, listen to what he said. When the government violates any Canadian's charter rights, we all end up paying for it. That doesn't sound like a 100% endorsement of the charter. Denise Thomas is with me, uh, sister to Robert Hall, Gord Bibby, Robert Hall's cousin, uh, Benice, in those nine months that your family member emailed about yesterday, when your family was instructed to be quiet, to be silent, not to not to do anything, uh, where did the instructions come from? What were they? I mean, what what communication did you did you in fact have with our federal government? The uh, communication to keep quiet. I I have to say, to this day, we are still being kept in the dark. So communications that we were getting from the government came from acronym-laden departments. 
so any information never came from the same place twice. Uh, and it, it was just constantly um, keep quiet because you will be responsible for endangering Robert's life. Um, we um, played the game and we kept quiet because we, of course, were concerned about Robert's well-being. But I have to say, Robert's dead. This is after the fact now. I don't understand why the government still continues to keep us in the dark. There's no reason for secrecy anymore. I need to know why the government did not attempt to rescue. I want the logic and reasoning behind that. And I want to know um, why we were kept in the dark and why we're continuously kept in the dark. No sharing of information at all. And in the, in the years since your brother's death, um, no contact and, and no explanation about what they did, why they did it, or what they didn't do and why they didn't do it. Nothing. Nothing. And I did on the anniversary of my brother's murder, which was June 13th. It was also the day that uh, MP Gord Johns presented our petition in Parliament. I wrote a letter to Christian Freeland to remind her that we still were seeking information. We still had the right to know what happened to my brother. We still had the right to know what the government did and didn't do. I've not received a response which is not surprising. I've not received a response from Christian Freeland. Um, and the only other uh, political um, person that I've spoken with was the, my MP, who is Pam Goldsmith-Jones. Pam Goldsmith-Jones I wrote to several times uh, when my brother was first kidnapped. At the time, Pam Goldsmith-Jones was the uh, legislative assistant to our foreign affairs minister, Stefan Dion, and I got no response from her or Stefan Dion throughout my brother's captivity. But I did hear from her shortly after the anniversary of my brother's murder. And in our conversation, what I took away from it, the one thing that Pam Goldsmith-Jones did say is, I agree with you, Bonice, your family does have a right to know what happened. So I'm going to hold her to that. It's atrocious. It, it really is. is atrocious. They can't even bother to reply. That they, don't, they don't even have the courtesy to reply to your Proper inquiries about what happened, what was going on. My brother is dead, has been dead for a year. Share with us, please, what was going on. Not even the courtesy of a reply, and it's horrendous. But Eason Gord, it's horrendous when, when I hear you say that the federal government put it on you, saying that, hey, if you talk, if you break the silence, and your brother is killed, it's on you. That's horrendous. Indeed. Indeed. Gord... Uh, we we know that governments pay attention to what is said on talk radio because they have departments that do nothing other than, than listen and monitor and transcribe. Assuming that someone is going to have a transcription sitting in front of them, somebody with a, a nice office and a major title, what would you say to them? <laughs> well, I... I know I know Bonice and her family have have a lot of questions they need answering, and I I I, I wonder why because I've I've written a fair number of letters to ministers and and you know and they come back sort of in uh, uh, boilerplate form from some other office that looks after 
looks after uh, public correspondence. Dear Mr. Bibby, thank you so much for getting in touch. Next time we're in your community, we'll be sure to look you up. Yeah, well, even if they said that, I'd be uh, I'd be relieved. But no, they don't say that. It's just that you know they they extend their condolences and and their sympathies, and and that's where it ends. And and I I'm just stymied by or I, I'm amazed at, at at how much they're they're trying to deflect and and how little attention they're giving this. It, it's like there really is a cover up of some some sort. And on the other side of the equation, Mr. Cotter, once we found out that. Uh, there was going to be a lawsuit uh, initiated by Tabitha Spear and by Lane Morris, who was on the air with us yesterday. Uh, once we, uh, once, once, once they found out, there was going to be for sure there was going to be a lawsuit. It's amazing how quickly the money was transferred into Omar Carter's account, and and the check was cashed. It's amazing how quickly that happened. That's right, three three weeks, uh, and this has been going on for thirteen yeah. years. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bernice Thomas, um, Robert Hall's sister, Gord Bibby, Robert Hall's cousin, on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Bernice says those nine months were, those months were winding along on a day-to-day basis. I I can't imagine how you would have felt at that time. Um, as As you go through these days, as you've gone through the last week, day by day, hearing about the Cotter issue, being updated on what was going on, understanding that it was leaked, that the federal government wasn't, didn't have any intention of being honest, straightforward, and explaining to Canadians what was happening. How did that affect you? How much time have you got, Roy? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, well, I, I have a bit to say about this. So I'll start with, as a Canadian taxpayer... Once again, I'm appalled with the slithering nature in which our government did this. Had it not been leaked, I mean, this is just my belief, but had it not been leaked, I wonder when we would have heard about all of this. So, again, lack of transparency, evasiveness by the Canadian government. Of course, the PM's out of town and can't be reached. It's happening during uh, summer sessions, so, you know, there's no ability to question people. That's appalling to me. And as well, I'm very concerned that that the lawyers working for the Canadian government agreed to a confidentiality clause that the Canadian taxpayers are shelling out for. We deserve to know how much, where it's going, why it's going, and, and we obviously need a few new lawyers if they agreed to a confidentiality clause. Well, we spoke yesterday with Scott Newark, who's a former Crown Attorney, and former advisor on uh, security issues to the federal and Ontario governments. And Mr. Newark told us that if he had been in charge, that case, this case with Cotter, certainly would have gone to court because he's the one who sued Canada. Gord, uh, one final question for you. Just received an email, interesting question from one of our listeners, and that is, have you as a family ever considered suing the government over the manner in which they mistreated you? Well, let's, uh, as, as a matter of fact, we have, uh, Roy, and uh, and I think that's still uh, an option open to us. It's, uh, we should maybe uh, approach Mr. Cotter's lawyers. They seem to be quite successful with what uh, what they've tried to do. Yeah, it's kind of sad, isn't it? It really is sad. It is. It's an uh, awful, awful situation. I, I, I listened to you reading my, my cousin's letter, and it brought me to tears. It really did. It, it just... Uh, shows you how, how devastated the family has been over, uh, over this whole episode. 
You know, it brought, uh, just looking at emails, it brought so many listeners to tears. Just listening to uh, to the words that was written by your family member. Benice, uh, obviously we're going to stay in touch. And, and uh, I know you're working hard for Canadians. You have the uh, petition that's gone to Ottawa. And we'll see what, what comes from that. And I certainly hope that you hear from Minister Freeland, or even better, from the Prime Minister of this country, who has a significant obligation to your family. Well, I, I hope I hear from them, Roy. I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, holding my breath. But I just want to say, you know, to any of your listeners that are, you know, care about this, in regards to this payout and apology to Cotter, I'm of two two minds, and I look at this in a little different aspect than maybe the average Canadian. I look at how this may relate to my brother's situation. On the one hand, if if we believe that Cotter is a terrorist, uh, throughout my brother's captivity, our Prime Minister boasted and bellowed and bragged that he doesn't negotiate and he doesn't pay out terrorists. Well, you just negotiated and you just paid out a lot of money. If we believe that Cotter isn't a terrorist and that his rights as a Canadian citizen were violated, again, this relates to my brother because he sat in a sweltering jungle for nine months praying and knowing that Canada had his back. Canada didn't have his back. His rights under the Constitution were violated. And Peter McKay was questioned in the press conference the other day when the apology and the settlement was announced, and he was very directly questioned, does the Charter of Canadian Rights and Freedoms apply to Canadians on foreign soil? And Peter McKay said a couple of times, yes, Canadians on foreign soil are protected under the Constitution. My brother was betrayed and abandoned by the Canadian government under the Constitution. And arguably, and I think definitively, remains betrayed Indeed. and unprotected. Indeed. Bernice, thank you. Gord, thank you. Thanks a lot, Roy. We'll talk again Thanks, soon. Thanks, Roy. Okay. Bye-bye. All the best to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Probably heard the name Charlie Gard. Maybe just recently, but you've heard the name Charlie Gard. He's 11 months of age. He's a baby in the UK, and he's making international headlines because he suffers from mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. And with that goes brain damage, seizures, paralysis, failing kidneys. He has the inability to breathe without a ventilator and more critical issues. And in the UK at the hospital where little Charlie Gard has been treated, he's been there, I believe, since he was eight weeks old. He's being kept alive on a ventilator, and the doctors there want to disconnect the life support system. And uh, they've gone to court. British courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the UK have agreed with the doctors. It's gone to the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court of Human Rights agrees with the doctors. The parents do not. Neither does the Pope. Pope Francis tweeted, to defend human life above all when it's wounded by illness is a duty of love that God entrusts to all. And Pope Francis has suggested that little baby Charlie Gard be brought to the Vatican. There's a children's hospital there, and they'd be willing to do whatever they can. 
And the President of the United States, Donald Trump, has tweeted as well, if we can help little Charlie Gard, as per our friends in the UK and the Pope, we would be delighted to do so. There is a doctor in New York State, I believe, who uh, suggests there may be an experimental drug that will be able to help Charlie. And uh, he said that he would ship that. Maybe there's a hospital involved in this as well. Ship the drug to the UK if uh, Charlie isn't brought to the United States. Joining me is Dr. Arthur Kaplan. And I've spoken with Dr. Kaplan many times on medical bioethical issues. He's the founding head of the Division of Bioethics at New York University's Langone Medical Center in New York City. His column in the Hill newspaper is Charlie Gard will likely die soon. Let's learn from the battle. And one of his books is Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. Dr. Kaplan, uh, you know, we have monstrous things going on globally. But when the life of a little baby is involved, Everyone is engaged. Everyone cares. Where in other situations, it's just another news story. When a baby's life is involved and everyone cares, that's, I think that's a good thing. But when you look at this little child and what he's got going on, first of all, I'm not entirely sure what this, what this illness is. I've read some of the descriptions, some of it from your column. Would you first of all tell us what this, uh, what this illness is? What, what does it do? What, what, what's it doing to Charlie? Sure, Roy, and thanks for having me. And this is a tough, tough case parents squared off against their own doctors at a very prestigious hospital, should add that. He's at the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London, which is top-rate institution, so no doubt that when doctors say there that they don't think there's much more that can or should be done for Charlie, uh, that's something you have to listen to very closely. Charlie has mitochondrial depletion syndrome, and what that means is Remember your high school biology where you saw all the cells dividing as things grow? Yes. As an embryo develops into a fetus, you see all those divisions. Well, it needs electricity. It needs power to do that. The cells have to get uh, some kind of juice <laughs> to uh, do all those divisions and make all those movements. And the way they get it is there are little batteries in our cells called mitochondria. They're outside the nucleus. They're not part of our the DNA that makes us who we are, but they're little power packs that every cell has. If they are missing, then you get a stillborn child. If they don't work correctly, there's been some kind of error in making them. If they are partly functional, you get Charlie, which is a mitochondrial disease, so his cells can't really grow or grow properly. And what listeners need to understand about Charlie is when we say he's got brain damage, it's irreversible because his brain cells did not grow from the moment he was born until now. And nobody knows how to restore those by drugs or any other trick. They never formed, and so he's going to be blind. He's going to not hear. We don't know what kind of sensation he can uh, undergo, but he's certainly going to be severely cognitively limited, I won't say can't feel, but not much. Part of his brain that runs his uh, breathing is not working right, so he can't do that on his own. He's on machines. His kidneys are failing. He is, uh, as I said in my column, sadly, I I don't know how long he has to live, but it's going to be measured more likely in months than years, no matter what anybody did. So he could not live on his own. If he's taken off the ventilator, he's going to die. Yes. 
Absolutely. There aren't very many children who have this illness. I understand under 20 in the world, perhaps. Yeah, I think, and here's the reason why. If you have trouble with those power units, normally you're going to be born as a stillborn. So the number of kids who even make it to birth and live at all, and they don't live past a year normally, is tiny. It's such a devastating disease, genetic disease, with the cells not growing and not working, that nearly any baby who would have this wouldn't even be born alive. Yeah, we understand the parents. Oh, we do, yeah. I mean, what parents wouldn't want to fight for their kid? And now, uh, you know, somebody says in the U.S. or somewhere, maybe there's something I have that can help, although what they're really saying is, I've never tried this in anybody, and maybe it would help Charlie live a bit longer, but it's not going to cure him or restore him. But the parents don't necessarily hear that. They just hear help. And, of course, I think they, they believe good parents pursue that. Uh, just trying to read a couple of lines from the uh, website. And uh, they suggest that uh, this doctor has had success with another mitochondrial depletion syndrome called TK2, which is similar to Charlie's. It's helping children to get their strength back and live longer. So when you take that into consideration, you and I have talked in the past about experimental drugs and when Mm. they should be used, and you've written on this, about when experimental drugs should be used or withheld from the public. If somebody's dying and there's an opportunity to make an experimental drug available to them and they're dying anyway, why not give them the drug? Now. is there a is there a medical or an ethical gray area here as far as Charlie's concerned? You know, not for me, and I'll tell you why. He suffered so much damage already, paralysis, this horrible lack of brain growth, the blindness, the deafness, uh, the inability to breathe, the kidney failure, and it, it goes on. There's no drug that anybody has ever invented that's been able to regrow brain cells. There's no drug that's going to... Uh, get uh, Charlie's uh, blindness to reverse, he might get back in some miracle a little bit more, uh, let's call it cell function, so that he could exist a bit longer. But what the scientist is saying is benefit. I think a lot of parents and a lot of us, if we were facing this situation ourselves, might say, no, that's not good enough. So there are experimental drugs that say I can reverse what's happened. They're experimental drugs. It's like, I can make you live a bit longer, but you're still going to have all these terrible deficits. That's what Charlie faces. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Arthur Kaplan back with us. Charlie Gard, the 11-month-old UK baby who has mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, who's going to have to make the decision finally. The family has almost one and a half million dollars. There is the experimental drug that is being talked about. The Pope is involved. The President of the United States is involved. The Prime Minister of Britain is involved. The courts are involved. Ultimately, who's going to make the decision? And we're involved. And we're involved. It's a long list. Um, I tell you, I think ultimately it's the courts. Um, This is a bitter dispute. The parents basically saying we want our shot. Give us a chance. The doctor's saying, you don't understand. Charlie's not going to get better. We're a very good hospital. We've done everything. If you try to move him, by the way, you'll kill him. Uh, yeah, I don't think he could make it to the U.S. or Canada or the Vatican. Um, so they went to court, and they've been up and down the British courts. They went to the European Court of Human Rights. And what those courts kept saying is if Charlie's going to suffer, 
then we should stop. Now, there is some debate about whether he is suffering. I get that. But the doctors seem concerned. The judges seem moved by that. They heard all sides. So if they don't say, you know, Charlie can go at some level of court, I don't think he will go. Then the question becomes, how does he die? Uh, Do they just disconnect him and give him drugs and sort of give him palliative support? Or do they just let him go slowly? And I think that's where the controversy will go next. Your column is, uh, Charlie Gard will die, likely die soon. Let's learn from the battle. What should we learn? Three things. First, Charlie had great parents. They fundraised. They fought the doctors. A lot of people wouldn't know how to use social media that way or would sort of not do the battle that these parents did. There are a lot of kids that don't have that. I get angry when I hear Trump getting into this because in the U.S. we've got all these cuts coming to the Obamacare Medicaid program, and that's 40% kids, and they will be cut away from proven treatments. Trump has never uttered a word about innovative care, experimental drug access for American kids, and there are plenty of them whose parents would like some money to travel or pay for drugs. So he's wrapped around Charlie, guard, but I consider that empty, hot air political rhetoric. Doesn't cost him anything. He can just wave his hands and say, we'd like to help Charlie. But he's ignoring his kids in his own country. And I think that's a lesson that has to be learned. Another lesson that has to be learned is no matter what medicine has to offer, at some point we run out of things. Futility is not a fantasy. And um, medicine always loses. You know, (laughs) it may lose sooner or later, but death isn't optional. It comes. And so at some point we have to get ready to prepare for accepting that. It's very hard. When parents don't want to accept it, and sometimes they don't, then sometimes you have to let doctors step in and have a little more authority because parental love can blind them to the suffering of their own kids. It's hard to say, but it's true. Mm -hmm. I think the other lesson out here is, so with a Charlie Guard type situation, um, are we ever going to set up a uh, system so that what is out there for experimental drugs could be better identified by people in Canada, people in the U.S., people around the world. You know, Charlie's parents only know about these researchers because they jumped out of the blue and sort of said, well, we're working on something and we never tested it, but maybe we could give it to Charlie. Need better websites, better databases, better ways to find these cures. We don't have a place for parents and patient advocacy groups to go to that really is consumer-friendly that would say, here's what's out there. This hasn't really been tested in animals. This has been tested in people. Let them make better informed choices. I had a tweet uh, from a, a listener who said, Charlie's not a lab rat. Let him die. Mm. Well, you know, researchers that jump up and say, I want to try it, they don't have many kids like Charlie because of the rareness of the disease to try it on. Sometimes you need some ballast against experimentation enthusiasm, if you will. You could hurt Charlie. You could make him suffer more if you give him something. You could actually make him die faster. Some would say, so what? He's going to die anyway. But you don't want to hurt him. You don't want him to suffer more than he would have. That's why I like the courts getting in here. Yeah, the you longer... can't persuade them. Yeah, I'm that, sorry, Dr. Kaplan. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you can't persuade you know, the Supreme Court of the U.K. or the European Court of Human Rights that you're not going to hurt him, then I wouldn't do it. And the longer this takes, the more difficult it's going to be on everybody. Yep. It starts to take its toll. Remember... Doctors and nurses at the London Hospital are still caring for Charlie, but 
they're starting to get frustrated because they think, what are we doing? Are we torturing him? The parents get angrier and angrier. They have money. They say, why don't you let us do what we want? Get out of our way. Um, more and more attention goes to Charlie, and a little bit gets distorted away from gaps in the healthcare system for kids all around the world who don't get all the care and dental care they could use. Yeah. Dr. Kaplan, almost good talking to you. Thank you so much hey, for Hey, my time. pleasure. All the best. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Bioethics at New York University's Langone Medical Center in New York City. His column in The Hill is Charlie Gard will likely die soon. Let's learn from the battle. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tammy and Nikki Hale, Haley join me, or Hale join me on the uh, Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Their 53-year-old husband and father, Doug, committed suicide after a horrific experience with the healthcare system in the United States, cutting him off previously prescribed opioid medication and the family doctor openly saying to the family he wasn't going to risk his medical license in order to continue to prescribe opioid meds for Doug, last October took his own life. Tammy, my condolences. Nikki, my condolences. You're both extremely brave for doing what you're doing, for sharing your story and for getting the message out that people are struggling and suffering and taking their lives, and this has to stop. Mike, our condolences collectively, all of us, to you. Thank you. Thank you. Tammy, the pain issue began with Doug, and I, I read very carefully what you sent me. It began when he was your husband, when he was 35, with a yeah. uh, terribly painful bladder condition. Can you tell us how, in, in your words, how this all began, what took place initially, what was done for Doug initially, and then how, when, when did it start to break down? Doug was very healthy before he was 35. He was athletic. He had a good job. He um, had a pretty happy life. He apparently had two congenital birth defects. One was urological in nature, and it blew up, that's what he liked to say, and he had to have surgery. And that set the stage for the interstitial cystitis, which is a very, very painful bladder of inflammation. He also had a brain bleed in 2006, which resulted in heavy migraines and seizures. His care was great from the time he first had the first um, urological issue in 1998 until 2014. He, was, he went through all the regime of regular therapies, which failed, went to a pain clinic. They put him on opioids, which high doses, 250 milligrams of opioids average a day which brought his pain to a reasonable level of four. Um, in 2008, the pain clinic backed out. A lot of them did, said, we're not going to prescribe, we're going to leave it to the primary, dumped it in the primary's lap, fine. Primary was fine until 2016, um, or 2014, and then he started pressuring Doug to go down to 90 milligrams a day from 250. Had a hard time with that for the next two years. And 2016, in May, is when he told Doug, I will not risk my license for you anymore. I'm not going to prescribe you any more opioids beyond this 30-day period. And that blunt. He said, you can go. Yes. He said, you can go to the methadone clinic for daily dosing. So we spent the summer trying to go to the methadone clinic, who rejected him three times because he was a chronic pain patient. Um, he had to put himself through detox for a month and get down to zero, which was really, really difficult. Um, the, the primary finally saw the excruciating pain in late July and put him on another dose for a month 
But then in August, on August 24th, the primary said, I'm not going to risk my license. I'm not going to write any more opioids for you. I'm all done. The methadone clinic can deal with you. So we went again. Um, they did an evaluation. It took five weeks. And they again said to me, and this is the part that was really difficult, they said, you're a chronic pain patient. You cannot be treated here. We're federally mandated to only treat addicts. And I looked at the nurse and I said, what are chronic pain patients supposed to do? They cannot live in this pain and no one will prescribe. I said, you're going to have a rash of suicides. And her response was, we already have. We've lost thousands. We've lost, we've lost thousands. That's what she said to me. We've lost thousands. They see this a lot. They and also told me a lot of the addicts are former chronic pain patients that turn to street drugs. Doug wouldn't do that, you know? I mean, it, you know, it, yeah. what, people have three choices. They have suicide, they have street drugs, or they have excruciating pain. This is not like regular pain. This is like level 10 thrashing in the bad agony pain. It is really hard to watch a loved one go through it. And we watched him go through it for two and a half years. Um, yeah. The last appointment was the day before he died, October 11th, with the primary. We begged him. Doug was so weak he couldn't stand up. He was in a wheelchair. He was shaking. He was vomiting. He was having seizures and chest pain. We begged the doctor to either prescribe opioids or admit him to the hospital, put him in assisted living, do the daily dosing at his office, something. And he refused to help. All they'd give us was a referral to a pain clinic, and they had flatly refused to prescribe opiates. He basically sent Doug home to die. He might as well put the gun in his hand. I'm sorry, that's a strong statement. That's how I feel. The next day when I left the house, Doug dragged himself out to a remote spot in the backyard and he shot himself in the head. Oh, and I found him. I found him a couple hours later and um, he left a note. Is it okay if I read an excerpt of his suicide note? These are his words. Um, it says, I, Douglas Hale, cannot take the chronic pain anymore. No one except my family has helped me. The doctors are mostly puppets trying to lower expenses and not accept any responsibility. Besides, people will die, and doctors have seen it all. So why help me? I'm expendable and no threat. They abandoned him, and he knew it. And that's just so wrong. And that's why we're speaking out, because people don't deserve to be left in agony to have those choices. They deserve to be treated with dignity and humanity, and they're not, and it's happening everywhere. It is. And what we hear from the government representatives and what we hear from the colleges of physicians and surgeons when they're willing to speak is a lot of double talk, and we hear about statistics of, uh, of opioid-related deaths and the opioid crisis. A lot of the statistics that they trot out are statistics that are applied to generic drug users who, who routinely buy their drugs on street corners who do not suffer from chronic pain and who overdose and die. These statistics have nothing to do with chronic pain patients unless the chronic pain patients have had their meds withdrawn, their opioid medications withdrawn completely, and they're living in a desperate, agony-filled reality, and they go to the street corner to buy some drugs because it's the only place they can find anything that provides even marginal relief. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly the choices people are left with. Let me take and a quick break. Beyond cruel. Okay. I'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll also talk to, to Nikki, Doug Hill's daughter. You're listening.
listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Nikki Hale. Nikki, when when were you first aware that your dad was living with tremendous pain? How old were you? I, I think I was about the age of 10. I remember my dad had had a couple of kidney stones, but then when I was 13, I was in middle school, I remember my dad ended up having to go on disability because his urogenital malfunctions were so bad that he couldn't work anymore. And I think it was then that I really realized how much pain he was in. And it just got worse from there. It just it never got better. It just only got worse. You got the feeling, did you, that nobody really cared about them? The health system didn't care about about your dad at all, did it? it especially in the last few years. I, I think what my mom said was very accurate in that from about 2004 to 2014, the medical community at least wanted to make him comfortable. There was no cure for what he had. There was nothing that could put him back together and make him whole but at least it could keep him comfortable and he could be my dad. And then in about 2014, things started to just fall between the cracks and nobody wanted to take responsibility for making him human again. And that's when I really lost my dad was about two years ago. Not, and of course, in last year as well, but about two years ago, nobody wanted to take responsibility for him. And I mean, medical community, no doctor wanted to take responsibility for helping him to be comfortable. It's so terrible to listen to this. And Tammy, the only thing that really, that, that your husband needed, because he had the conditions he was living with, the chronic pain was going to be with him for the rest of his life. All they needed to do was provide him with the pain relief that we already know that you knew and, and had evidence of that the opioids provided. We did. We did. He was successfully treated for 10 years on 250 milligrams, and they adamantly refused to give him even 90 milligrams in the end. It was the only thing they tried, everything else. So many patients I talked to, they try everything and nothing works. It's the, only the opioids that work. And um, would they take the insulin from the diabetics? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you both to come back on the program. We're going to put together a show with a program with, with patients um, and with, with family members and only patients and family members. And I'll ask you both to be part of the pro- that program. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'd be happy Thank to. you. Thank you, Roy. And on my blog, by the way, I wrote about, about your dad and your husband, about Doug, today. So if you go to my show page, Roy Green Show, on any of the radio okay. stations uh, that carry this program, um, you can, uh, you, you'll see the, uh, my blog about, about, your, about your husband and your dad. Okay? Thank you very Take much. Care. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take Bye. care. Nikki and Tammy, we'll come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We've been following the case of uh, RCMP civilian employee Toya Montague for a number of years. She was named by the federal minister for public safety, Ralph Goodale, on national television as one of the women within the RCMP who have been subjected to sexual harassment and abuse. Goodale mentioned only four people, only four women he mentioned, only four, and one of them was a Toya Montague. So right there, the Minister uh, for Public Safety, Ralph Goodale, or explained, or tried to, why Cotter got the $10.5 million. right there, Mr. Goodale accused the RCMP 
as an organization of having sexually harassed and sexually abused Atoya Montague. You did that, Minister, and it's on, it's on, it's taped, it's recorded for everyone to see. But since then, the minister has done nothing for Atoya Montague, nothing, and the RCMP has moved forward while they've settled the, the um, class action lawsuits. They, uh, with Atoya's case, it keeps getting turned back and moved back and moved back and moved back, draining her resources more and more and more until the point she's bankrupt, can't afford to pay the bills because, well, they're doing that to her. And it's not without intent. It can't be without intent. So I received an, an email from Atoya um, that she'd received what amounts to her, uh, her official dismissal in the past couple of days. And she's on the program with me now, along with Dr. Rag Passy, who is um, Atoya's psychiatrist. They're both from British Columbia. Uh, and interestingly enough, Atoya, you emailed as well today. Good to speak with you again. You emailed, it was exactly one year ago that you and Dr. Passy were on this program as well. That's correct. Isn't that funny? It really <laughs> is. Wouldn't it be nice to have a better update today, a year later, and to not be revisiting the same issues and themes? But unfortunately, as you so eloquently spoke about um, in your intro, yeah, the, the reason... Minister Goodell was mentioning my name in the first place at that news conference was because me and three other uh, colleagues had written to him and to the Prime Minister of Canada at that time and asked them to intervene and stop the RCMP from discharging us before we were able to seek justice in these outstanding lawsuits we were involved in for a number of reasons. One is we're funding our lawsuits out of pocket while the bad guys that we're suing are having their lawyers represent, be representative of them sorry, by the government of Canada, i.e. the taxpayer. And we asked them to intervene and say, oh, at the very least, if you're not going to help us fund these lawsuits, our only option for justice, please stop the RCMP from firing us. Well, I'm the only one of the four that they have actually gone ahead and discharged prior to any kind of settlement or trial. Um, and I see it as ongoing, as you said, there's intent here, there's punishment here. I, I'm being singled out for being outspoken. And, and, you know, it doesn't just stop. The egregious nature of this doesn't just stop at the fact they just charged me a full year prior to my trial with the very intention of trying to bankrupt me further and, and cut me off at the knees. Uh, financially, but there, a number of things happened during that discharge that are even more egregious. They discharged me nine days, nine days prior to my 15-year anniversary of service, nine days. They discharged me at a level I have not performed since 2004. They've completely omitted, they're denigrating and minimizing all the roles and function and, and management roles I played. In fact, in the third paragraph of, of Jane L. McKinder, who is the head of HR, who actually discharged me, letter, she calls me a communication strategist in 2009. I was a manager of a unit in that year. So they're actually, I don't know what they're doing. They're fabricating information even in their discharge letter. Um, in, in the 18 pages she sent me in this discharge letter, nowhere does she mention the name of a coordinator to help me set up a pension. Who do I talk to about coordinating medical pension, disability insurance? Nothing, not a word. I was the last three days just in a sheer panic, not knowing what my options were, would I never get a paycheck again, what do I do now? I was tracking down members from across the country helping me, finding numbers and names for me and pension coordinators, and it took me that long 
just to get the information to start reading through these hundreds of pages of documents. And then I come to find out all the other people who have been discharged, they start the process for them long before they get discharged so that it all kicks in before they see their last paycheck from the RCMP. So another form of punishment. So they're clearly, I mean, they've, they've, clearly, on and on. they've clearly singled you out, and you are going to be the... Uh, yeah. You're going to be the poster child for uh, don't 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 mess with us because this is what could happen to you if you do. Yes, that's exactly why they do it. That's Dr. exactly why they do it. Dr. Passy, you've known Atoya for some period of time. You've been on this program before. You're an eloquent uh, defender and spokesperson for Atoya and what she's suffering and what she's going through. Please uh, share with our listeners what Atoya's reality is as far as her health is concerned and what happened when you contacted the RCMP with your concerns. Well, um, you know, the RCMP is basically um, either denying uh, their impact on Atoya um, or they're not really following, uh, you know, the types of uh, support uh, that one would expect to receive. Uh, it's very clear, the, the, the medical literature is very clear, lack of support by your organization can be as damaging as the original traumatic event or events. And the fact of the matter that, you know, they, they've not even spoken with her or the lawyer about a settlement. They've continued to uh, delay the trial dates. Um, all of this speaks to the, the whole idea of lack of support. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing is the person who discharged her is also the person in charge of whether or not the lawsuit goes uh, forward or there's a settlement. Uh, and yet she seems to think that uh, she is in a position where, um, she's not biased at all, and it's like the whole the whole system, the whole process is flawed. They brought in this Bill C-42 to get rid of the bad apples, and to date, as far as I'm aware, the only people they've discharged are victims, none of the abusers. How would you describe Atoya's health? Well, uh, it would be better maybe for Atoya to do that, but she's she's uh, got numerous It's okay, you can speak issues. freely, Dr. Passia. Yeah, you have my permission. <laughs> She has numerous health issues, um, and, you know, starting with the post-traumatic stress disorder as a result um, of the harassment, sexual harassment, etc. But the problem with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is it also affects other systems. It affects your GI system. It affects your muscles. Um, it affects your immune system. We know that there is increased rates of um, um, cardiac disease, stroke some types of cancer, diabetes, asthma, just a whole bunch of things that go along with it. So anything that we can do, I can do as a physician to treat this and get it uh, into remission, um, the better it's going to be for her health. And I've been stymied at every step along the way. Health services with uh, the RCMP are aware of the impact this is having on her, and they've done nothing to intervene. And I see this um, both their action or lack of action and the action by the RCMP as punishment and a further abuse of the power. And in reality, it can only be seen as further harassment. Were they not also very dismissive of you when you tried to intervene on Atoya's behalf? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they've, they've basically got a family physician that's uh, overruling um, my opinion, um, even though she has absolutely no postgraduate training uh, in this area uh, and has very limited knowledge. And she's basically just uh, uh, said that, oh, well, um, there's no reason not to discharge her. Um, there's no medical reason not to discharge her and, and go ahead. So, um, like, you know, the problem is 
the health services office and, and those serving there are under the direct influence of, of the RCMP upper management. So they're all they're all together. The whole system's corrupt. Yeah, I, I will never forget the first time, and Atoya knows this, as do uh, other women in the RCMP who have fought the force and fought for themselves over the sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual assault some of them faced and dealt with. Uh, I tried to get the commissioner of the RCMP, Bob Paulson, on this program, and the RCMP's response was, would you provide us with the questions that you plan to ask the commissioner? And normally my response to that would be, absolutely not. But I thought, I'll do anything I have to to get the commissioner on this program because it's important to talk about this issue. So I provided them with 10 questions, sent them to, to, the, uh, to the media people at the RCMP, to their head media person. And a few days later, I received an email basically saying, no, not going to happen. And all that said to me was, they cannot answer the questions. They cannot answer them. They wanted to find out if it was fluff stuff that they could talk their way through, and when they found out that it wasn't, they chose the chicken exit and uh, to no one's service and to the absolute disservice of Atoya and uh, other women within the RCMP at the time because the class action lawsuits hadn't been settled and really disservice to the force and the visibility of the force. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Atoya Montague, Dr. Greg Passy are my guests. We're so reliant on those things. And uh, you're, you know what, Atoya, you're a really nice person. This needs to be said. And, and, and not enough uh, is, t- is talked about as far as people's character is concerned. People form opinions of someone over what they hear or what they see about them uh, on, on television and radio and in other media. But you're a really nice person who went through some really rough times, and you deserve a lot better than you're receiving. Tell, remind us what, uh, what, what did Sheila Fraser, how did that conversation go with the former Auditor General, who was brought in by Ralph Goodale, the, the uh, Public uh, Safety Minister, how did that go and remind us of what the content of the Minister of the former Auditor General's report was? Well, first of all, thank you for the nice compliment. I'm trying not to cry. That's very kind and generous of you to say. Um, well, you know, the Sheila Fraser review, I have to say, you know, I I devoted my entire summer, I embra- last summer, I embraced the process. I felt they found the right person to do the review. I dug out boxes and boxes of material. I opened files that I hadn't had the stomach to open since all this started. And Dr. Passy will tell you, going through all this information is really detrimental to your health. I was so sick. My PTSD was off the charts for an entire summer. I just, I, that was a blur. I was just really ill, but I was determined give them every piece of information that could help inform the process. And they were, she and her team, extremely caring. They were very appreciative. They, they were very patient. They said, I spent two full days with them in Ottawa, and I went through all the information that I sent them and explained things in detail and gave them recommendations. They were kind. They were gracious. When they came to show me the report months later, again, you know, highly sympathetic, outraged. I mean, simply outraged by what their findings. Um, I think anyone who starts a process like that, even when they think they know, they become so disillusioned so quickly that it almost, it, it takes a while because you, you've built up this perception, the RCMP is the good guys, and it's this value set that you've held on to your whole life and been brainwashed to believe, including all of us who joined. You know, it takes a long time to believe, oh my God, what you're seeing in front of you. But, you know, she had to go through all those motions, and I felt that she really got it. She really saw it. She was a very empathetic person. She's a very smart person. She's a very no-nonsense person. 
And I did all this for her and ultimately for the government of Canada in order to fix it. And look at how they're thanking me, Roy. They didn't do anything to step in. Instead, they chose to fire me. Um, at no point in this process have I had any protection other than thank God for Dr. Passy and my lawyer here and there. But I mean, otherwise, I've just been left to hang out to dry. And the government knows this. They know that this is a year before my trial. They know how costly these things are. They know the defendant's lawyers are paid for by the government. I just can't fathom how they are excusing this behavior, how they're justifying it. How I want them to look me in the eye when all this is said and done and explain to me how this was ever okay. And to how come back, is this okay? And to come back, what we started with, Dr. Passy, uh, you, you as well, it was Ralph Goodale, the Minister of Public Safety for Canada, who voluntarily told the nation that Atoya Montague is a victim of sexual abuse in the RCMP. It was the federal minister responsible for the RCMP and policing in Canada who told the whole country this woman was abused in the RCMP. And so now, what's the government doing? What's the RCMP doing? Further abusing her, arguably. Well, I, you know, I'd like to step in just for a moment here because I had approached uh, Ralph Goodall as well as a number of other politicians um, uh, to uh, intervene uh, on all of these cases that are uh, before the courts. And, of course, they said, well, it's before the courts. We, we, can't, uh, we can't do anything. Yeah, but standard said, response. Right. But I said her being fired is not before the courts. You have the opportunity to intervene right now, get the commissioner to just say, stop uh, all discharges until the lawsuits um, have gone to court or they're settled that that was a simple that was a simple message that could have been relayed to the commissioner the commissioner could have made it policy at that point in time and that had nothing to do with the lawsuits and I pointed out the only way the discharge is going to have anything to do with the lawsuit is if they actually proceed with the discharge and the government as much as they espouse, you know, uh, equality and, and uh, everything for women, etc., um, did nothing. They did nothing. They're still doing nothing. And they're still nothing. doing nothing, yes. Yes. I have 30 seconds, Atoya. How's this last week affected you? <sighs> it's been so stressful. I mean, you get a letter like that, and it's so cold, and it's so biased, and she wouldn't even let me look at my own medical file that she used, that the doctor used to base a decision that I'm unfit for duty for the rest of my life. I mean, she wouldn't give me my HR file. I don't even know what these people have in there that they're basing their decision on, except some of the false information I'm reading. And it's so cold and callous to at no point say, they don't, A, say thank you for your service. They don't say, B, yeah. here's somebody you could contact to get help on to figure out your pension and to get, you know, transitioned out. Nothing. You're just fired on July well. 4th. Sayonara. I have to. I have to. I have to. I have to end it there because of the clock. But I just want to remind people that it was the federal minister of public safety who pointed out to the country that Atoya Montague had been abused, uh, sexually um, harassed within the RCMP, and now she's being fired. Has been fired. Atoya, this isn't over until you say it's over. We'll talk more. And Dr. Passy, thank you both very much. I've got to. I must run. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Take thank care. Bye bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.